Hello and welcome to the History of Vikings. Before we get into today's episode about Norse religious rituals and poetry, I would just like to encourage everyone listening to consider supporting the podcast by visiting our sponsor, VKNG. VKNG provides handcrafted Nordic jewelry inspired by the myths, culture, and traditions of the Viking Age. VKNG is a company that I've been familiar with before I started this podcast, as it was recommended to me by one of my personal friends from Norway. All of their jewelry, designed for both men and women, is crafted with only the highest quality materials. VKNG crafts every piece of jewelry by hand and is a great way to symbolize your passion for one of Europe's most distinguished cultures. If you would like to support the history of Vikings, head over to vkngjewelry.com and save 20% off your entire order for the next 15 days by using the promo code NOAH20 or simply follow the link in the description of this episode. Today I'm joined by Dr. Simon Nigar, a PhD in pre-Christian Nordic religion from the Department of the Study of Religion at Aarhus University in Denmark. In addition to being a scholar of Old Norse religion, Simon is the frontman in the runic black metal band Wolfas. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Noah. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and I'm so excited to get into our discussion today. We're going to be talking about Old Norse religion and two particular elements of the way in which the Norse worshipped their gods, which is always fascinating to me. My first question to you today is this. Much of what is known about Norse mythology, stories of Norse gods and heroes, can be found in poetry. The famous poetic Edda certainly comes to mind. Apart from teaching us about Norse myth, is there anything that poetry can teach us about Norse religion? How significant was poetry to the Norse as a means of worshipping their gods? Yeah, well, um, that of course are uh, you know two very good questions. Um, first thing I think that I'll, I'll I'll note is that the Norse myths, as we have them, do seem to have been a very large part of the religion. We can say that. They form kind of the story world uh, of the religion. So uh, they tell us a great deal about how um, how the uh, the pre-Christian peoples of the north uh, viewed their world. For instance, the fact that gods without problem can visit the worlds uh, the worlds of humans. So so this kind of worldview in which every part of the world is part of a larger kind of cosmos, a larger world, um, where you can move between worlds without uh, without having to, for instance, die uh, and transcend this world into the other world. You can you can be part of of both worlds. So so the Norse myths are are important to the religion in and of themselves. Uh, of course, the poetry that we have, uh, this is the case with all our sources, does seem to stem from largely an, an elite environment. And this is, of course, not to say that the the sources can't tell us anything about how ordinary people uh, viewed the world. Uh, for all we know, and um, the religion of the, the elite would have been, kind of, uh, of course, recognizable to the common people and the other way around. 
But when it comes to to worship, um, kind of how 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 did how did people address the gods? This is this is uh, something that's not covered very well in the sources, sadly. Um, and an example that could be kind of construed as a form of worship that springs to mind would be uh, Sonatoric in in Ail Saga, uh, where the protagonist Ail ends up acknowledging that all the pain that he's gone through and that he blames Odin for causing uh, at first the loss of of his sons uh, mainly then kind of results in him being able to create the finest poem that he's ever created then you know ends up thanking Odin for kind of providing him with uh, with that opportunity that could be seen as a form of kind of a form of worship at least but it also seems that poetry played a role in um, kind of the transmission of religion and of tradition in uh, in the pre-Christian North, because um, we're dealing with largely an oral society. Uh, this means that the only place that we can kind of store tradition, religion, stories, anything really, aside from runestones, which is, you know, you could do, you could do a whole another episode on runestones, uh, or, or many, uh, many episodes, uh, it would seem. But you can only store information and knowledge in the human mind. And a way in which this uh, is commonly done in oral societies is through using poetic form. Poetic form is easier to remember, uh, and it's easier to kind of keep relatively stable over time. So for instance, a myth that we have uh, and all the cosmological information in sources like uh, Grimnismaul or Vafthurnismaul, the poems from, as you mentioned, the Poetic Edda, they would have been primarily accessible to people in poetic form. And, and this poetic form then, again, was perhaps uh, ritualized in some sense. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, this leads nicely into my next question, which is this. Uh, would it be fair to say that medieval Scandinavia in Iceland was a society of great storytellers? And do we have any idea as to how poetry might have been performed as a collective ritual uh, during the Viking Age and certainly the Middle Ages as well? Um, yeah, I, I think it would be fair to say that there, there were at least some great storytellers in, in the medieval Scandinavia and Iceland and, and before. Of course, we have one of them, uh, very known to us, Snorri Sturluson, who, who recorded, uh, most of the known, uh, prose of, of, the, of the mythological information in the, in the prose edda. But some of the work that I've done, uh, has pointed to the fact that the poetry seems to have been performed ritually in the Viking Age in a hall-based setting. Um, so the hall, as a kind of multi-purpose room, is one of the one of the, the hallmarks of, of Viking Age hall culture. And one of the functions of the hall would have been that of a a ritual space. And the poetry that I've mainly worked with is the variant called Ljóðahátur poetry and translates loosely to meter of song or meter of incantation. Um, and one of the, uh, one of the significant and, and, and characterizing things about this uh, form of poetry is, as Terry Gunnell has, has uh, worked on uh, for, for uh, 25 years now, 
um, or more even, is that when performed by a poet, it's done in the first person. And this means that the world of the gods or the mythological world is taken into the worlds uh, of the performer. And um, this is uh, also true for, for the identities of these uh, gods. So, so this performance perspective is at the center of, of, uh, of, of this, uh, this approach. And what happens when a human poet or ritual specialist acts or I hesitate to use the word act because I think there's something there's something more at stake here. Um, they, they take on the identity of the characters in the poems, and this means that they transform into or become in the ritual moment the persons that they portray. So Odin uh, in in many of the poems in in the poetic Edda, for instance, um, and other than that. By, by, by performing this poetry, the hall space, I just talked about the hall space as a ritual space, um, and in this function it is transformed in some sense. by uh, So it's, it's, it's both a performance space that is the place where the performance takes space, but it also, um, in the performance, this created this, this double scene, as the Swedish scholar Lars Lundroth has, has called it, um, so the performance space and what I call the performed space, that of the poems, of the mythology, uh, they, they blend together into this uh, ritual liminal space in which all sorts of things can happen. And furthermore, when you're an audience sitting in this liminal ritual space witnessing uh, a performance of poetry, whenever collectives that kind of is loosely based on Existing structures in society, for instance, the Einherja, the, the the mythological warriors of, of Odin's hall, uh, Valhöll, uh, or the Valkyrie, the the choosers of the dead and and kind of uh, <laughs> mythologized barmaids of of the same place of Valhöll, when they are mentioned in the poems, doing things that correspond with what people would recognize as tasks that they would do, then they have the potential of taking on that same identity and becoming that mythological um collective in in the performance and and you know that would at least to my mind uh have meant a huge deal to their understanding of uh, you know their own identity and their group identity so that's kind of the the the, the personal consequences for for that that could have been accompanied by by performing this kind of poetry that that individuals and collectives and and kind of spaces could be transformed uh, in these performances and and kind of establishing that function I've then gone on to to try and propose some specific ritual occasions for the poems I've worked with uh, for instance as uh, royal funeral poems or or rulers uh, initiations. That's extremely interesting. Now, one question that came to my mind as I was listening to your, your last answer is, what do you make of this notion of skalds, this idea of there being a group of people in Old Norse society whose specialty was reciting poetry in the presence of a court or people whose really main job in life was sort of this job of being a storyteller? Um, is this something that uh, certainly happened 
in pre-Christian Scandinavia, this idea of skalds? Yeah, definitely. Um, their main role was probably a different thing. So in, in Viking Age Scandinavia, um, there were very few people who had kind of highly specialized roles. So for instance, if we talk about ritual specialists, uh, or, or kind of what we in modern society would, would call priests, uh, which is the, the kind of an anachronistic term to use in, in pre-Christian uh, Scandinavia, but, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. There's very little uh, evidence for full-time ritual specialists, for instance. And many of the skulls that um, we have descriptions of were also part of the the of of the kind of the, the warrior the the warrior band surrounding the king or the ruler that they were in the service of. So there's this idea of of the court poets who kind of would to a large extent have had kind of a primary function as a skull. But then there's also the idea of of the wandering skull, uh, molded kind of uh, I I see it in in, in the the image of Odin as this wanderer going around um, uh, visiting human halls. But but they were definitely, uh, uh, to my mind at least, had the potential to to fulfill a ritual role as well. And, and some of the poetry that I've looked at um, is actually connected to uh, known skulls, um, uh, named skulls, and, and would have functioned in, in uh, a ritualized setting. Are there any specific examples of Old Norse poetry that we could make a reasonable guess as to the fact that it was probably recited as a ritual? Yes, uh, th- there is. Um, in in the work that I've done for my uh, PhD dissertation, I've worked with a handful of poems, uh, Grimnes Maul from the Poetigeta and and part of Halvo Maul. Um, and then I've worked with three praise poems, um, Hakuna Maul, Eriks Maul, and uh, Hrafn's Maul, or what's also called Harald's Kvedi. And um, I'd like to mention two of those. Uh, for instance, Hakuna Maul, which is a praise poem for the, the Norwegian king Håkon uh, the Good, who was, uh, was uh, a king in Norway in the middle of the 900s. And uh, the poem is a praise that takes the form of Håkon being approached on the battlefield by a Valkyrie, uh, who then talks to him and says that they have to go to Odin's hall to meet Odin uh, because Håkon is dead. And um, then uh, Håkon is inducted into Valhöttl to become uh, this part of, of, of Odin's um, mythological retinue. So that's kind of, that's, that's the narrative that's found there. Um, and reading it as a poetic, uh, ritualized performance, I've argued that part of the poem, this also is situating it in, it his, in its historiographical uh, context in the, in the King's sagas, where we have uh, the poem preserved and, and uh, inserted into a context. And uh, it's uh, preceded by a description of Hokan's actual funeral, so his, his interment into a grave mound. And um, I, I, I like to see this as kind of a, a literal description that Hokan is buried and then the poem is recited. So it can roughly be divided into two parts. And this also follows the, the meter uh, in, in the poem. So the first part is a description of uh, Hokan's last uh, battle. 
the Battle of Fitja uh, on the island of Sturth in Norway. And it's kept in the, the, the meter called Maulahauta, which is uh, a meter that means basically speech meter. And uh, this uh, poem about the battle is then performed. I like to see it as uh, performed by the king's kind of the grave of the king as he's either being buried or has just been buried. Um, and then a shift happens when the Valkyrie enters the scene uh, and addresses Hawkon in dialogue. And the, me- uh, the meter shifts also then from Maulahauter to Ljodahau. Um, then there's a dialogue of following uh, a description of how they travel to Odin's Hall. And this kind of movement implied moving people from outside the hall to inside the hall uh, is touching on some of the things that uh, that, that we might talk uh, a little more about uh, later, namely processions. Um, and then, uh, then afterwards, we have the rest of the performance inside the hall, where Hokan is inducted into Valhutlin and, and so to say, finishes his rite of passage, his his uh, funeral ritual being safely uh, ushered into the other world, uh, and his family, his his society, the society in which he was a part of, kind of witnesses this happen. Uh, in the poetic performance. So that's one of the poems, at least, that, that uh, I'd say was probably recited as a form of address. Yeah, no doubt. That's really interesting. Well, Sigmund, the last question I'll ask you about poetry today, and uh, I appreciate you indulging me, allowing me to ask you so many questions, because uh, it's such a fascinating concept to me, is this. I've recently been reading in my spare time The Viking Way, Magic and Mind in the Late Iron Age Scandinavia by uh, Dr. Neil Price. And a little while ago, we talked about how the hall would have been sort of the center where this poetry would have been not necessarily acted out, but certainly performed as ritual. I'm curious, in your view, does shamanism or sort of the magic that would have been a part of Old Norse religion have a part to play in poetry ritual. Um, this this idea of sort of reciting these poems or performing them as part of one's religion in order to sort of venerate a particular deity or worship uh, the gods in some other format. Um, uh, well, yes and no. Worshipping gods and addressing them in poetic form uh, poetry as a form of ritual and a form of religion, I definitely say so. But, but I'm I'm loth to see that as a part of shamanism. Definitely, I'm I am uh, I'm on board with seeing parts of uh, the magic practice in Old Norse religion or pre-Christian Nordic religion as having shamanistic traits. But seeing it as kind of a full-blown shamanism. I don't think that uh, that there's very good evidence uh, for that. Uh, a lot of the descriptions that I read of uh, of uh, using this idea of, of a shaman or the poet as a shaman actually doesn't really describe a shaman as it's described in the, uh, the comparative study of religion. But what it does describe is what we would call a religious or a ritual specialist. So a, a person who uh, communicates with the god who mediates between this world and the other world by uh, conducting rituals 
that's a ritual specialist, but a shaman is a specific kind of ritual specialist who conducts rituals on behalf of society and who goes into a trance uh, most often to to accomplish this. And uh, I've been kind of I've been accused of being a purist when it comes to to terminology uh, uh, in the past, but uh, to me, shamanism is particular to a specific type of society like uh, the Inuit uh, Inuit societies of, of uh, the circumpolar north, um, for instance, the, the, the Sami uh, and, and, and societies like that would definitely have shamans. And by way of, of having had cultural contact with societies like the Sami, aspects of shamanism, these shamanistic traits would definitely have bled over into the, the pre-Christian Nordic culture. Um, but I, I, I'd say that that performance of poetry and shamanism, at least that's my take on it, don't necessarily mix together. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Well, thus far today, we've talked about poetry and how it relates to Old Norse religion. And at the beginning of today's episode, I mentioned that we're going to be discussing a second facet of Old Norse religion, and that is the idea of procession rituals something which is equally fascinating to me. Well, I understand that there is very limited evidence available for the historical worship of the Norse gods. However, both the Roman historian Tacitus and an Old Norse saga describe two different Germanic gods being driven around in a wagon as part of a procession ritual. How important were procession rituals to the Norse? Can one be fairly certain that they were common occurrence in pre-Christian times? I would say yes, that it would have been quite common. But the thing is that it's the type of ritual that could almost be taken uh, for granted. It's uh, a, a type of ritual that's often a part of a larger ritual. Um, so, uh, for instance. In, in funeral rituals, procession is a part of, um, of, of carrying the coffin from the, the church, for instance, to the grave. But it's not necessarily identified by, uh, other than in the, the historians of, of uh, religion and scholars of ritual, as a specific ritual, because it's, it's just what we do uh, when we have a funeral. But... but um, these accounts that you mention of of uh, of uh, the 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 Nathus, uh, ritual in in Tacitus's uh, Germania and of the curious story of uh, of Freyr in Ökmund uh, of Dits um uh, the part called Gunnar's Thauter Helmings uh it it's is something that aside from the fact that that one may be uh, either molded on 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 the narrative of the other, or that they may be more interestingly perhaps um, variations of the same ritual, uh, are, are, are stories in which you know a god being driven around in a, a wagon, bestowing fertility or bestowing wealth on the region that they visit. That that's kind of the, the basis of of both of them, and and that can be understood to be a a procession ritual at its core, um, and what what um, scholars of ritual have done is that they they've pr proposed to divide uh, 
processions into different categories. So, so there's one which is called the functional procession, in which a kind of ordinary movement we need to get the coffin from the church to the grave because that's where it's supposed to end up. But we need to do this in a a uh, a kind of a, a ritualized manner. So that's the functional procession. That's the sacralization and ritualization of of uh, functional movement, basically. And then there's what can be termed the hierophoric. Uh, it's a, 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 a tongue twister. Uh, the hierophoric uh, procession, which is the the parading or the carrying around of something sacral. Um, so it be it a god or be it a ruler or something that represents something sacred. Um, that's that's that type. And, and there's also something called the mimetic uh, procession, which is the reenactment of a mythical or a uh, a, a, a kind of foundational uh, narrative. Um, so if, if if you take, for instance, um, mystery plays. Uh, they they often fulfill that 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 role and and uh, a, uh, a a poem like for instance skin is small in in Terry Gunnell's, uh reading of it uh, where the the various parts of the poems was performed at various locations around a farm that would be a sort of a mimetic procession as well and then the last category categories are called a demonstrative uh, procession which kind of displays common features and characteristics that are uh, common to a group. What we can find in in the Old Norse uh, religion is, is basically um, two types of processions that can be categorized into these four uh, four different categories. So the the, the the ones that you mentioned in in the beginning of this question here, the, the Nathus uh, narrative or ritual in Tacitus, and this story where uh, uh, an idol of Freyr is uh, is carted around in the wagon by a female uh, a female priestess they are a what can be called a circulatory procession in that they start at one point and then they make a circuit around uh, a given landscape and then they end up at the same place and once that uh, we can find in, in in our sources are largely connected to well-being and to fertility and then there is a, a sort of uh, a, a second category, which is uh, the linear procession, and that is um, not limited to, but often it is part of uh, funerary practices. So a mythic example would be the myth of Baldur's funeral in uh, in Snorreida, where Baldur is the first god to die, and he's also the first god to receive a formal burial. Um, and he's then moved uh, from land out to the sea, it said, uh, where his funeral pyre is arranged on top of the ship. So if you remember the, the, the functional procession of, of getting a, a, a ritual object, the body of a dead god in this, uh, in this case, uh, to the place where the main ritual event is to, be, is to take place, that would be uh, an instance of of this, and then the gods attending Baldur's funeral, described in both Snorreda and a Skaldic poem called uh, Hustrapa, that uh, that's also characterized as a form of procession that the, the gods come uh, one after the other with their sort of mythological uh, entourage. Um, so, so thinking in in 
terms of of processions and looking at the, the the sources with that in mind specifically is how you can tease out this information which is not normally uh, seen in in uh, you know these aspects uh, are not something that you normally uh, uh, think of when you read uh, Baldur's funeral for instance when you think with these uh, kind of ritual studies glasses on uh, then then uh, all sorts of interesting things can can uh, pop into your eyes. Well, Simon, this is the very last question I'm going to ask you today. Uh, we've only discussed two facets of Old Norse religion, poetry and procession rituals, of course, just skimming the surface of the religion of the Old Norse peoples. If listeners at home could take away a few things from our conversation today, what do you hope those would be? And what would you encourage all of our listeners to bear in mind about our conversation today? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say it, it was a pleasure being part of this, uh, this podcast, and I've uh, enjoyed it very much. And I think I would encourage uh, people to, to try and think about what you could call the, the lift aspect or the practiced aspect of religion. Um, so to ask a simple question, when reading the sources, what could these myths and what could these rituals have meant to actual people living in the Viking Age? And that, that that's one of the most uh, interesting things that uh, that one can work with uh, is is how can we see these myths, these stories, uh, as a part of of actual people's daily life and as a part of their religion. This is something that that's increasingly been in focus for for a younger generation of scholars and uh, for, for for some some of the older generation as well. But looking at poetry not only as as text but as oral performances and seeing what what can that bring to our understanding of poetry to see them as actual performed pieces of oral or verbal art can situate them in a whole different understanding and a whole new reading of it. Um, and the same with processions. Uh, how how does it uh, how how does it affect our reading of, for instance, this chapter of Tacitus's uh, Germania, uh, which is one of the most well known ritual descriptions in in our source material. But looking at it from from a different uh, perspective, looking at it from this practiced uh, practiced uh, perspective, uh, can can tell us something something new and interesting. So that was probably it. Think about the lift and practice aspect of pre-Christian Nordic religion. Absolutely. Well, Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I know I very much enjoyed our conversation and have learned a great deal. And I'll put links in the description of this episode to all of your work where people can follow it and learn more about you. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening today to the History of Vikings. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to consider supporting the show, visit today's sponsor, VKNG. VKNG handcrafts Norse jewelry inspired by the mythology and culture of the Viking Age. All of their products are made with the highest quality materials and are designed for both men and women. If you're like me and have a deep passion for Nordic history and would like to demonstrate that passion, head over to vkngjewelry.com and save 20% off your entire order 
for the next 15 days by using the promo code NOAA20 or simply follow the link in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening today to the History of Vikings. Be sure to join us right here again next week. 